Hey there, listener. We are back. After a one-week break, I was down with laryngitis and couldn't say a darn word, which I can tell you was fantastic for my team here at National Land Realty and especially for my family back at home. But we are back and we have a contest for you. We'll be giving out a swag pack of National Land Realty gear for the best review for this podcast. That means good bad or in between. I'll be selecting the winner based on enthusiasm and creativity for the reviews. We'll be selecting the winners in the first week of March for 2023. So review us and tell the world what you think of this podcast. We'll be announcing winners on this podcast. So pay attention so that you can get us our co- your contact information so we can get you your gear. Welcome to episode number 28 of the National Land Realty Podcast, where we discuss all things land. Our goal here is to inform, educate, and entertain those of you who own land or are interested in the buying and selling of land throughout the United States. My name is Mac Christian, and I am the Chief Marketing Officer here at National Land Realty. I'll be your host for this episode. Now, in this episode, we'll be telling the story of selling an 8,000-acre island. Roper Island in Hyde County, North Carolina is the largest acreage ever sold by National Land Realty, and we will be talking with Aaron Sutton, the land professional who helped make it happen. Aaron is truly one of the best in the business throughout the United States, and land this large will present a challenge for everybody, especially when dealing with conservation easements. This episode will help anybody who is looking to buy or sell a large piece of land, especially if a conservation easement or a 1031 exchange is involved. Now sit back and enjoy the show. All right, I am sitting here with Aaron Sutton, who recently sold uh, the largest acreage that our company has ever sold. And in case you don't know, our company has been around for a while. And uh, we've sold a lot of land. And this one was uh, 8,000 plus acres. Um, and so, Aaron, just jump jump me in and just like tell us a little bit about the 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 property and and sort of, you know, how it came about. How did you how did you get introduced to these landowners and, and sort of what did this look like? So, yes, sir. Uh, this was an 8,263 acre tract in Hyde County, North Carolina which for those listeners that don't know Hyde County, uh, this is a very, very remote area on the eastern shoreboard of North Carolina. Um, It's just a little coastal town, really, really good recreational county. Um, But this this island, and it is a true island surrounded by by water um, with about 20 plus miles of of water frontage uh, that you got to take a boat to access it. So, Roper Island, it's a, a lot of history to it. It's a unique property. Um, but I was introduced to it through actually the president of our company, Jason Burbage. Um, he had a relationship with the clients that owned it and a, a long standing relationship. And, you know, me being the broker over here, he's just kind of connected the dots with us. And um, a guy named Ed Mabry, one of the, I, I consider him a grandfather now, just about. Um, dear friend that we built that relationship. He, uh, he said, Aaron, he says, I like the way you talk. Let's, let's go for it. Let's put it out there on the market. So we did. And, um, I actually, I brought in one of our other brokers, Chase Blaylock. He helped out a little bit on it. And, um, I'll talk more about that further on, but Ed said, let's sell it. So I went and took some pictures and drove the property and, and walked into the property and, Man, this this thing is like the Amazon of the East Coast is the only way I know to explain Roper Island. Um, when you get on a boat and you're riding around it and on the shoreline, you're immediately looking straight up at 150 foot tall pine trees. It is intimidating, this island. OK, and then you get off a boat and you step on it. And the first thing you see is is bear scat as big as your foot and you know that that's a 600 pound plus bear. Right. Um, man, it's a, it's a scary track and you're walking down and you're seeing water moccasins in the canal to your left or, um, you know, there's, there's animals on this track that's never seen a human before. I mean, 8,000 acres is, that's a big chunk of land. Um, so it's intimidating and, and, uh, rare and there's a bunch of other adjectives for it, but unique's the best one. I'm looking at this this 
400 plus pound bear behind me, the rug that I've got on the couch behind me. And, and I'm imagining your 600 pound bear just kind of like, ah, all right. <laughs> and 600 is going to be an average size. Um, they're going to push well over 700 pounds in this area. The, uh, big the world record was killed. <laughs> yeah, the, the world record black bear was killed in North Carolina. He pushed over 800 pounds. Um, and he was actually feeding off of hog, uh, hog bins, uh, from a farmer, from a local farmer. But long story short on that one, uh, they disqualified that bear because they considered it a baited bear. But I was going to say, uh, he would have been 800. Yeah. Yeah. They, they would have said he was 817. But this area holds well over 700 pound bears. That's um, crazy. it's just, it's, it's wild. But man, to step onto an island and know that that's their home. Um, they are not scared of you. You're scared of them. Um, and then you've got hogs and, and you know, obviously you got your deer and bear. I mean, a deer and turkeys on this track, but, um, it's intimidating. So, yeah. How, how uh, big of a waterway is it between? So you, you have to take a boat and it's got what 23 miles of water frontage. I mean, it's, we're talking a huge Island here. So are the waterways, are the waterways narrow enough for game to, to swim? Yes, sir. So I know that you're on the Western coast of the United States, but we have the intercoastal waterway that runs from basically from Florida up to New Jersey or somewhere. And it's a coastal waterway that everybody takes their boats and just goes back and forth. The intercoastal waterway separates this, this track from the mainland. And it's probably 300 foot wide across that, that section. Okay. Um, the majority of it is between 300 and 800 foot wide. Uh, but then on the eastern side of the island is, is big water. I mean, you've got that's, that's the Pungo and the Sound out there. Um, so it, it's big water. I mean, that mile wide on that, that right side, the eastern side of it. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's beautiful and it's, you have to get to it. The only way to access it is by boat. Um, and there's one main path into it. That's about four miles long. I was going to ask, so that was my next question is, is what were the access routes like through this 8,000 acres? I mean, was there anything established or was it just pretty much, you know, wild? It's very wild. The owners did put a bulkhead in. Um, on one spot on the intercoast woodway, they, they put about a boat, a bulkhead on about 10 acres. Um, and so you can pull a boat, step over and you can walk down this main path and it's, it's wide enough to drive a truck down. The problem is you can't get a truck over there because of the waterway. So <laughs> it is, it's Pat and Charlie all the way. And I've walked it seven or eight different times with clients. Um, one guy we struck out uh in july this was two years ago he came from indiana to look at it and took the boat out and he said no man don't worry we aren't gonna we're gonna i don't want to walk it because i've done told him it was four miles you touch a tree and you come back and so we started walking into it and next thing you know we're walking a little bit further and a little bit further and he's like man let's just go ahead and walk to the other end and it's july and i didn't bring any gatorade or any water or anything and by the time we made it back to the boat, I was about give out. And he's over there chugging on the little bit of water he had. I thought, man, this was a bad idea. But, <laughs> but yeah, the access you can see on the aerial map too. The, the, yep. So I, I didn't know what I was looking at when I was looking at the aerials. And you're right. There's there's just one path that goes directly through the center of it, and you've got miles and miles of nothing but wild on either side of you as you're walking down this path. You're walking through it. You're bumping bears. Um, I've literally ran up bears. Uh, there's some thickets so so and so far down every so often, and you'll bump a bear. See a black bear go running through the woods. Had deer run across in front of us. Uh, coyote one time. Um, it's truly wild. So so you talked about the intimidation of walking into a piece of land this large and, and a piece of land sort of like as uncultivated as this is. Um, how do you go about your process of evaluating this in terms of value, in terms of, 
you know, anything that you're looking at in terms, you know, for, for a potential buyer, how do you assess this? So the tricky part about this one was there was actually a conservation easement on the entire track. So immediately you take timber value off the table. Right. And you just look at it from a dirt value of, all right, what's it worth? And, and because it's so remote, you're really looking at it from a recreational value. Um, so, I mean, it ended up selling only for a couple hundred dollars an acre, but it's still, you know, 8,000 acres. So it was still a substantial price, but um, you have to take all the timber value off of it. There's no road crop cultivating land. So there's no value there. It is literally just recreational hunting value. And and for those that don't know, it you know, maybe just a quick walkthrough on conservation easements as far as what what you're establishing and and, and it can be on a state by state basis depending on how you go through it. Uh, you know, in in so you're talking North Carolina, and is is there can you remove it at a later point? Is there time limitations and what are your restrictions? So state of North Carolina uh, applied this conservation easement. There's different different companies, government companies that will put easements on properties, but state of North Carolina did this one. And some of them, you can do a 15 year conservation easement. You can do a 30 year, or you can do what's known as a perpetual conservation easement, which is a forever and ever, basically. Um, so the longer that you establish one, the more tax benefit or cash payout in upfront there is for you, the longer it's, it's, it's more worth it. Um, for the government to pay you more if you're going to put it in a perpetual conservation easement. So that's what they did. Um, and basically oh, this, that this means that perpetual. you cannot, this is perpetual. Okay. You can never touch the timber on it. Um, and it's, it's deeded, recorded. You know, it's, it's a serious, if you cut trees on this, it's breaking the law. Um, now you ask about removing it. It takes an, a true act of Congress to have a conservation easement removed um, is the simplest way I know to put it. People have to sign off and sign off and they will never do it. <laughs> so once you do yeah. this, you're in. So it's and, in. and so this is a this is a way for a landowner to own a large tract of land and and also defer the taxes that you face on that land because you're leaving it open for wild and you're leaving it untouched by human hands. But it stays in your name. You own it. Um, you know, what, what are the logistics on that? Does it become public access? Is it still private? So the conservation easement, uh, it, it does go in your name, but it does transfer with the land. Um, now, I don't ever recommend to somebody doing a conservation easement unless you plan on keeping the property forever and ever, you know, because it does remove most value for a potential sale down the road. Um, but still some people do it. And, and these guys did it back in the nineties is when they put the easement on it and they had all, all potential or thoughts of keeping it forever. Um, and then they start getting older and, and they said, you know what, let's, let's sell this track of land and, and do something else. Cause they've got kids, their kids got kids. And next thing you know, it's splitting it up amongst four different families is what it was. So um, I can't remember what else did you, what was the other question you asked? Now you asked me too. Uh, <laughs> no, I was, and, and well, I, um, no, I did want to point out too when you say transfer with the land, what you're saying is if people sell the land, that that conservation easement transfers with the sale of the land. So whoever buys it is also picking up a piece of land with the conservation easement. It's not like you sell it. And the conservation easement goes away and it becomes a private piece of land. So it transfers in there um, with, with right. the owners. That's right. That's right. And then was this, did they receive a, like a compensation by setting up the conservation easement? Like a, like you were talking about a cash up front compensation where the government will, will compensate you for giving up the rights to harvest timber and stuff like that. Or was it strictly a tax benefit? Um, they did a cash payout is what they ended up doing. Um, and all this public record, um, but they did a cash payout on theirs um, back in the 90s and and received a very fair amount for it. Uh, um, I'm glad you pointed that out, too, that it's a public record thing, because I realize you can't discuss confidential yes. information. So, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's public record. Um, 
So you can look it up or, or whatever. The, the new buyer knows what they paid for it or what they received for it. Um, and, and the crazy thing is the new buyer has never stepped foot on the property. Just so that threw a whole there. other conundrum in this. Yep, he's uh, he always wanted to own a large track of land. Um, he had a little extra change in his pocket and said, hey, I want to purchase this. So um, he purchased an island. Was this was this for so was it sight unseen? That's crazy. Uh, so I mean, it's it's really cool, actually. Um, so was this purchased for recreational purposes or strictly because it's it's sort of like a conservation thing? Um, he was he was spending some money, um, but it was also he is a, a outdoorsman. Okay. Um, he likes to hunt and fish and and everything. He's from Texas. Um, but, and he owns about 200,000 acres outside of Colorado. Um, so, but he owns that with a group and he said, Hey, I want to, um, I want to own my own little spot on my own outright. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's without having to answer to the group. That's right. That's right. So, um, but we had it under contract multiple times. Um, I learned a lot about real estate with this one. With with regards, some I knew a lot about conservation easements, but I know a lot more now. Um, <laughs> then there's also a thing called called a Torrens Law. Uh, have you ever heard of that? No, I've never heard of a Torrens Law. Walk me through. So a Torrens Law or Torrens Act is basically instead of transferring a deed, a deed of trust, um, or I mean a, the actual certified deed, they transfer title. Is what's done. Okay. So uh, I didn't realize that that's what happens on a lot of larger tracts of land is that they'll transfer the title because there's so much land there that it's hard to put it all into one deed that it's, it's, it's a title um, kind of like a, a car title. Right. So instead of um, being able to transfer that and do a, a um, deed search, and look at all the previous owners and make sure that it has a clean and clear deed. They have to make sure it has a clean and clear title. Now they can go back and do some of the history on it and do a search on it. But we, uh, we had it under contract with one group out of New York and literally a week before closing the, uh, the closing attorney, he gets looking at it and he had never ran across the track with the Torrens law on it. He goes, uh Oh, we need to, uh, we've got to run a public record article in the newspaper for 30 days and verify that there was no outstanding, um, you know, squatters, basically. It's make sure that there was no squatters on the property and that nobody has any rights or title to the property outside of, you know, the true, the true owners. Oh, dude, does North Carolina have similar? I, I know in where I am in Idaho that there's there's squatters rights laws. Like if you're there for 20 yes. years, you can establish ownership. That's right. And I believe ours is, I can't remember if it was 15 or 20 years also. I, I don't ever deal with it, but we do have squatters rights laws. Yeah. Um, so we had to run that in a newspaper for 30 days. And then a judge signs off on it and basically grants you clean and clear title. The problem was that the buyers, they were on a 1031 exchange and they only had two weeks before their time ran out and we had to wait 30 days. So they ended up pulling out of the deal and they bought something else real quick um, because they had 1031, that point, right? That, that's right. They, they had to purchase one of their other identified properties. Hey, and, and that's a really cool no, one that too, for, for anybody that's listening uh, is, is, the the 1031 exchange has a time limitation you decide to put your land up for sale and in order to defer the taxes you have to buy another piece of land of is it equal or less or equal or more uh equal or less value um you it's two dates to remember you've got 45 days from the day you sell your property to identify three um other properties to purchase and then identification you have 180 days uh to purchase one of those three properties so six weeks and then you got six months six weeks identify six months to, to purchase 
And then you get attacked so, early. So you're basically, I, I always call it like trading Pokemon cards. It's, it's like just swapping your cards, right? You're just swapping your land right. out. <laughs> and with no, with no tax, uh, tax burden on you. Right. Um, so that happened on it. Um, because once, was a once you go to market, you're you're on the clock. You'd like if you yep. don't make your sale by the end, you take a full tax hit by the end of it. So so if that if that date of you having to put the property in public record and, and put it in the newspaper exceeds that amount, they can't close the deal in time. So then they're on the hook for their land. Yep. All right. Yeah, and depending on how much it is, I mean, you're talking about you're talking about hundreds of thousand dollar taxes on tracts of land, you know, this big, right. 30% tax rate roughly, um, on when you're in the million dollar property. So you're talking about three or $400,000 potentially that you're giving to the government or you can buy a property and, and have save that. So, and it actually comes into the market today. People are willing to overpay for properties, um, because of the tax benefits of it. They'd rather pay a little more than have to pay out taxes of that that much. So the last couple of years with this hot market, we've seen a lot of 1031s that were willing to overpay for property. So then they wouldn't have to pay that tax burden. Right. So uh, going back, you know, you said that with a conservation easement on it, you can't do a whole lot with it. It is strictly recreational. This is just a piece of land that you are conserving for the the better good, right? Like, you know, you're you're keeping this untouched. This is a piece of land that just gets preserved in the United States. And that it reduces a lot of the value because you can't harvest for timber and create income. You can't put crops on it, you know, stuff like that. You can't throw a house in it and like, you know, and and develop it. So how do you evaluate that? Man, it was tricky um really looking at it, but you just look at it from a Swamp land, I mean, you, you can go around, you know, eastern North Carolina, everywhere's low in eastern North Carolina. When you get a hurricane, we all flood. You know, so you look at it from a low-lying areas, what is the dirt value of those low-lying areas? And you're usually around a couple hundred dollars an acre. So that's ultimately what it what it boiled down to um, was just looking at it from that standpoint. Uh, and it actually appraised for the value that we sold it for just actually just over it. Um, and all the comps were showing the exact same thing. So we, we priced it spot on. So I was going to say, did, did you take comparative analysis and take similar listings throughout that general area? Or did you take the whole seaboard to sort of establish the value of that land? To And this is looking well, at properties that sold, right? And seeing what the price per acre is for similar listings. That's right. And but there's nothing similar in the size range. I mean, even two or three thousand acres, there's nothing around. So you have to use the top end of the comps that you can find, which I think we found a 700 acre. I think there was one close to a thousand acres and then one was like 466 acres. Um, So you use those as an evaluation. and, And we actually use five comps instead of three. Uh, the standard is, is, you know, about three comps. And I think we use five or we, um, the gentleman that had it appraised or that appraised it for us, he, he ended up pulling five. Gotcha. So you're taking, you're analyzing a similar property, much, much smaller, and then just establishing the general price per acre and then looking at the higher average. Okay. That's right. Yep. So So obviously challenging 8,000 plus acres. (laughs) (laughs) Very, very, but, um, it was it was worth it. I mean, it's three years of I say blood, sweat, and tears. But uh, you know, we had it under contract five times. Um, you know, agreements. I had one guy come from Alabama. He you know said I'm going to sign the contract, bring this contract with us, and we get up here to the boat. He gets on. He actually went ahead and signed the contract because that's how sure he was going to be that he bought it. We get on the island and we walk to the end and I prepared him. I said, he, he was an older gentleman in his, in his sixties. And he said, uh, I really want it. I really want it. I said, it's, this is for a, a man's man. That's what I am. So we started walking and we got about three fourths of the way down that path. And he looked at me and I could see that look in his eyes that I don't know if he's going to make it back. (laughs) And, He said, uh, he said, 
how my hips bothering me? He said, I don't know if this is more than what I could chew. And I said, well, let me tell you, he was, I'm not a big guy. Um, I'm 170 pounds and he was, he was a lot bigger than me. And I said, I can't carry you back and there's no cell phone signal. So you're going to have to make it back to this boat. So we turned away, headed back. And he said, this is more than what I could, I can do. And, uh, the humidity he, he, in the you know, area? I'm, I can imagine it's very humid. It, it is hot. It's, um, you know, it's a long walk. It's, you're looking at all these big trees and, and it's, I'll give you the, the mentality of an ant. Imagine being an ant and you have a really big ant hill. That's <laughs> what you are. You are a little speck in the middle of this big old area. And it's, I don't know if I can do this, man. I don't know if I can get back. And I was like, man, you're going to have to because <laughs> I can't carry you. We can't quarter you and pack you out, uh, man. Yeah, there, we can't get a truck over here because there's island, I mean, a, a waterway in the, in the way, you know, so um, uh, I could have called a barge in and got a full wheel or something, but good gracious, uh, you really can't call because you don't have cell phone signal. Right, right. You need like a, you need like a sat phone just to go on. Satellite phone, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so you and, you, and you just said this, and I didn't know this, that you had this on the market for three years. And I mean, like, because what you're looking for is a very, very, very specific buyer. Like this is a like being with the limitations of a conservation easement. You're looking for a This is this is a needle in a haystack as far as this the person that would want this. That's right. So, well, with one of the buyers, he was under contract, the, the gentleman with the 1031 money. Uh, he was under contract for about nine months, right? Just a week short of his oh, time frame. Wow. And so that took up, I mean, that's almost a year there. You deal with another guy for four months on it. They had it under contract and end up, it was more of a beast than he could manage. Um, so it was under contract for almost two years of those three years. By the time you add them all up, you know, it, it stayed under contract. And then this gentleman had it under contract for about five months before he ended up purchasing it. Um, Which is another thing to know. To- I was going to say the land sales it's, you know, it's all real estate, right? Like we work with real estate and it gets kind of lumped in with residential and all the and farms and things like that. But like large land sales take a very long time as far as their sales cycle. And like going under contract for five, six, nine months for things, that's a long, that's a long duration. It is. And, you know, there was some hiccups. He, he was wanting to see it and then he couldn't make it out here and then he was wanting to see it and then he couldn't make it out here again. So we extended his, his study period for a couple of times. Um, but finally he said, you know what, I'll just go with it and ended up purchasing it. And, and I literally wiped the, my brow and I was like, good gracious. I wasn't sure if this was going to happen or not. I, I didn't want it to fall through again, but he'd never seen it. So you try and give him his time to get out here, but he's, he's a busy businessman and, and ultimately, uh, he, he couldn't make it. So he went ahead with the purchase. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, so what's this like for the landowner, right? Like you decide that you're going to sell this massive piece of land and three years later it closes. I mean, did, did they start kind of getting anxious, anxious about it or, or was this like they understood that this land was going to take a while to sell? Did you set that expectation out front? How did, how did, what did that I, look like? I told him at the price that we were putting on it, it would receive a lot of attention. And we would receive offers. Um, but because of how unique and rare it was that, and these guys are smart guys. I mean, they, they looked at it, they purchased it. So they know yeah. what it's like to be a buyer. Um, but they understood that it was going to take a special person to want to um, tackle this beast, so to speak. Uh, and that's the reason I said in the beginning that Mr. Ed Mabry, he's, he's turned into like a grandfather for me. A uh, very smart businessman. He's a South Carolina boy, just good old country boy. Um, he understood and was didn't get angry with anybody. He uh, obviously, I'm sure he was like, "Dang, on this will fail through too." But um, <laughs> every time I talked to him, he was upbeat. And when I could tell he was getting down, I would kind of be upbeat to kind of offset that. Um, you know, it's. I couldn't have asked for a better seller hands down. Now he was my point of contact, but there was four of them. Uh, but I couldn't ask for, for a better seller. And, 
and literally consider you. I spent three years with this man. I talked to him once, twice a week for three years. Oh, wow. And I consider him a dear, dear friend now. Um, supposed to go down, me and my wife are going to go down to, to Greenville, South Carolina. He, he lives in Spartanburg, but we're going to go down to Greenville, South Carolina and meet him. And he wants to take us out to a nice dinner and just um, hang out with him for a day and, and kind of like shake each other's hands and say, good job. Cause I haven't seen him since it closed. I mean, it was a remote closing. So, um, I just, he would just, he said, I want to go give you a hug. Cause you did good kid. That's what he told me. <laughs> that's cool. And that's, and that's something that's unique too with, with land sales. Cause I, cause I always can make the comparison between residential and land, right? Cause residential short sales cycle, it's a volume thing. And, and that, you know, a lot of the times you barely even know who you're working with, with, with that. But when it comes to a land sale, like, it's a true relationship that you develop with, with landowners and, and you're, you're, it's a team effort and you're walking through and it can be long sales cycles. Like you said, two to three conversations a week for three years, just to, just to work yeah. with this thing. Like that's a unique circumstance for this. Yeah. And we had to use other national land brokers, uh, Chase Blaylock out of the Hickory office, uh, Hickory, North Carolina. He, he came in and helped out some on it. Um, Got some photos for me, helped me do a couple of things. Um, and then Matthew Eeks also, uh, he's out, he's a local out of Hyde County. Um, he was not with us when we listed the track. Uh, he's actually one of our newest agents. Um, but he was able to meet with the appraiser. Uh, this happened really with the appraisal stuff. The guy wanted to get an appraisal on it. And I was actually in Missouri deer hunting and calls and says, Hey man, we've got an appraiser that's wanting to see the property in, in like two days. And I, I was like, well, I'm in Missouri in a deer stand and I just got here yesterday and I won't be home for five more days. So Matthew Eeks reached out and said, or I reached out to him and he said, man, I'm glad to do whatever you need to. And he spent the entire day with the appraiser, driving him around on a boat, walked the island with him, um, told him everything he knew about the property. Um, so, you know, having, a network of good agents involved also definitely spoke powers to or spoke good to the power of national land realty and, and our teamwork that, that we were able to do. It's fairly unique how we work. I was going to say, you probably bought that man a sandwich, huh? <laughs> yeah, actually uh, I was with him this morning and, and, and bought his lunch. And um, I said, I'm still picking on him. I'm like, man, I still owe you for helping me out that day. Cause I was in a pickle. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we've talked about the valuation of this thing, you know, and, and it takes that's obviously a complex process. And we talked about the sales cycle being, you know, a three year thing with all the challenges that it has. But how do you go about marketing something like this? How do you get this to the right people? Um, So uh, obviously a lot of outdoorsmen in America would love to own 8000 acres of a recreational paradise. Um. But yeah, for millions of dollars, there's only a few of them that can actually afford it. And I mean that as respectful as I can, uh, but that's the truth be told to it. There's very little in income, investment income to it um, because you can't cut the timber and whatever. So it's you got to find that one person that's willing to buy it that isn't worried about it being profitable up front. Now, then the gentleman bought it, he might be able to sell it, make some money on it down the road. Who knows? Um, but you know, you market it. You use our national land base with you know we've got 500 agents across the country. We put it out in front of them and say, hey, do y'all know of any big investors that that are looking to put some money somewhere? And this is a great track to do that for. Um. So we use our. I don't know. Well, you, you could probably come up with a better word than I could, but. <laughs> Our national land. Uh, I think you hit it. Network is a good. Is a good. Yeah, you know. networks a good, the greatest. I guess the greatest word that you can use for it. But we use our national land network. But then also we uh, we send it out to some of our large cities that have the money of um, that could purchase it. Your your Texas areas. Your your New Yorks, which New York had it under contract, got it bought. It was out of Texas. Um, you know, there's there's a lot to it. Uh, to marketing something like this. Did uh did the purchaser ever disclose where he found it? Uh he he found it um on one of the land search networks, and I'd have to go back through and, and look at it. Okay, gotcha. But, uh, it was one. Of, it was it was through online. 
Gotcha. Gotcha. So he, he, he found an aggregator site, just a site that pulls all the listings together. Cause we, we, we put our listings on several, you know, of those aggregator networks that, that are, that are out there. And, and so he just found it on one of those through a basic land search then, huh? Yep. Wow. So, uh, so he purchased this basically because I'm, you know, you had several pictures online of, of what this was. Um, and he purchased it sight unseen. That's right. That's excellent. That's, and that's that, right. Sight unseen. So how do you attribute that? Do you attribute that to great photography, great description? How, like, you know, what was, what was the key there? I'd say a great salesman is what I'd say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, a little bit of everything, truly. I mean, the, the photography, the uniqueness of the property is probably what done it. Um, there, this is the only property I've ever seen, even listings through that other agents have, you know, we've got a great network of guys and we put all of our listings together, but it's beautiful food plots and tree stands and, and all this. This is literally the Amazon. There's no cute little food plots over here with deer stands. It's raw timberland that's 90 plus years old. And it's just a jungle. Um, so the uniqueness of it, but with that being so unique, it also brings every time that you make it more unique, it makes a guy go, now nah, I really wish I had more hunting paths or nah, I wish I had more row crop involved. Um, so we literally found the one guy that was willing to go through with it. And this even borders the alligator river. Am I seeing that right? That's right. That's terrifying. Yep, the alligator river. <laughs> and that, that doesn't help when he goes, are there really gators out there? Yes, sir. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Between that and the poisonous snakes, I'm just not used to that stuff. So that stuff's terrifying to me. Uh, rattlesnakes, uh, water moccasins, copperheads, spiders. I don't, I don't do spiders. I'm not scared of a snake, but a spider gives me the, the willis. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That, that, those are all nope ropes for me, man. That, that doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, um, so and the thing, bears and the, oh yeah. And the bears. Yeah. yeah so, any idea of what the populations are of those animals? I mean, you say that there's bears and they, you know, they run up to 700 pounds. Was there ever any kind of like a census or, or any idea? Did you have any, any, um, you know, foresters check it out or anybody, any specialists look at like game? Pop no, sir. So Hyde County in general, uh, this is what I've been told by a biologist in the area. I'm not going to swear that it's the truth, but there is more bears per square mile in Hyde County, North Carolina, than there is in any other region in North America. Oh, wow. That's incredible. Hyde County bear hunting is like going to Iowa chasing whitetails. If you want a true trophy black bear, you know, I know that they're up in Maine. You can go to, you can go to Canada, whatever. Um, Hyde County is the mecca of trophy black bear hunting. Uh, you're talking about to shoot over five or 600 pound bear. You're going to be somewhere in the 15 to $20,000 range. Wow. Cause it's mostly, these are, these are all private hunts, right? Private hunts. You know, you can do some public land. Um, the bears through your public lands are going to run, you know, three or 400 pounds for, for good bear. Cause they shoot them. It takes a, it takes a 15, 20 year old bear sometimes to reach. 600 650 pounds right right so public land obviously they shoot they shoot a lot more bears so therefore your numbers are dwindled dwindled down some so when you listed it the first time how many how many photos did you have up of this thing um i had a bunch uh 20 25 but but the problem with with this property is when you when you fly your drone or, or whatever to, to take pictures of it, all that you see is canopies of trees. Yeah, you can't even see through. There's the no pretty, right? So you see one canopy picture; it's it's the same for all of them. <laughs> so it's not like you can go take 200 beautiful pictures of you know this and that and whatever. It's you fly it up, you're just looking at at a sea of green treetops. Did you go trekking off past so, through this thing? Oh yeah, I've been down that path 
seven or eight times. I've rode around the island seven or eight times. I mean, it's I've I've done it right, and it's it takes a full day to do it right. I mean, from eight thirty in the morning till you're pushing trying to get back to your truck for dark. Wow, this yeah, it, it so, would be, and, I, and I've looked at the photos and stuff, and it, it like it looks like exploring the Amazon. Um, yeah. So, what was the most important lessons that you learned out of this? Patience. Patience. Patience is probably the most important lesson I learned. Um, especially when it comes to uniqueness and and whatever patience and and don't give up. Um, and Mr. Ed said, Aaron, there's always a way we're going to figure this thing out. And there's always a way to get this property closed, just like with Torrance. All right. Well, how do we satisfy the Torrance law? We put it in a newspaper for 30 days and then a, uh, um, a judge will sign off on it. He said, the buyer is going to follow through, but Hey, we're going to keep our head held high. We're going to now have this one off the table and we call them hiccups. This hiccups out of the way. And now it won't be a problem in the future. Next buyer comes to the table. The, the gentleman that purchased it. There's a Torrens law here. We've already satisfied it and we're good to move on. So that, that hiccup taught us patience, but also in the end, I mean, we were able to satisfy it and, and it worked out for the next guy. So I was going to ask you the same thing for what the best lesson for a landowner would be. And I think you'd already, I think that establishes both sides of what you learned and, and what a, what a landowner should probably have too is patience, right? Yeah. And I mean, you know, we, we all deal with buyers and sellers, different personalities. Some guys are antsy and want things to happen now. Um, and then some people are, are, yeah, sure. It is whatever. Um, but having a good client um, and also your good client trusting you as a good agent it is it spoke volumes of him to keep saying, hey, man, you're doing a good job. Don't worry about it because you start to second your guess yourself. Am I doing something wrong? Um, not necessarily somebody better suited. I, I know I do a good job, but you look at it and go, all right, am I doing everything I can to get this property sold? And you know, one issue comes up after another and you start to scratch your head, but having a good seller or, and, and even a good buyer, the gentleman that purchased it was a super nice guy. Um, and he was understanding. He rolled with the punches. He couldn't get out here. So we gave him a little bit more time, which was patience with the seller. And um, ultimately, he just said, you know what? I'm going to trust y'all. Uh, I know what I'm buying. So let's move forward. Wow. So, Having good clients is, 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 was 90% of the battle. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did the client come to you through a realtor or was it, was it direct? No, it was direct. Um, and so I was able to help him out, which, you know, a lot of times people say, well, you know, yeah, you want to have both sides of a transaction, but truly with everything that I had been through on the property, if, if another agent had been involved, it would have convoluted the situation that much more because I was able to help him directly and help the the seller. I was able to talk frankly with the buyer because we were under an agreement um, and say, look, here's the Torrens issue or here's this, or we've got the appraiser. The appraiser was able to reach out to me and we were able to work it all together. So it actually made it easier being, being a, a dual agent in this situation. I was going to say, because another agent coming in, it would have probably taken a couple months for them just to get up to speed on the legalities and, and it, the it would have. property itself, right? Yep. Yep. And I don't say that mean towards any other agents or whatever. Oh, no, there's a lot of great ones out there. <laughs> but, you know, it's definitely, um, it, it would have made it that much to more to tell him something and then him have to tell his client and have questions about it. And it made it a lot easier to have that one-on-one -on -one with a, with a buyer. Yeah. So it sounds like too, you know, if somebody has a piece of land like this and we'll just talk with, with something that, you know, large with the conservation easement that one, you need to have patience, right? Like that's what, you know, you pointed that several times in this and especially with the duration that it was, that's an incredible amount of time. And additionally, you know, 
make sure that you know things like the Torrens laws, right? Like where you have to publish the sale for so many days before you can even have a transaction and, and make sure that that you understand, you know, what you need to do before you move forward, because that could cause a hiccup. Um, anything else that, that somebody should know, like, you know, I they've inherited something, their family decided a long time ago to do a conservation easement on their land, and they've inherited that because that because that goes with the land, right? When you inherit it, you inherit that conservation easement. What other things should a landowner pay attention to if they're looking to sell something like this? So one thing is, obviously, if, especially if you've inherited property, you can you, you've dealt with an attorney, whether it be through the state or something, just go ahead and have him do a little bit of a title work on it. Uh, it'll save you a lot of headache down the road. Um, like if this had happened and he already had the title work done, um, the Torrens Law, uh, they would have seen it and been able to you know, say, hey, here we go. Um, also, what do you want to do with the money after you sell it? You know, knowing being up front about the 1031 or, or being knowledgeable about it, um, you know, knowing tax advantages of, of a 1031 um, or opportunity zones. There, there are several different tax, quote unquote, loopholes um, that you can use land for. Knowing some of that stuff, being knowledgeable is, is huge. Um, but also just knowing what you have there. The sellers knew that their property was encumbered by the conservation easement. Um, they knew that it was a recreational only property. They didn't have unrealistic expectations. Oh, well, it's waterfront. You know, it's it, it should be worth multi, multi millions of dollars. No, it had a conservation easement on it. And yes, it is waterfront, but we can't do anything with that. So they had a realistic expectation on the pricing. And um, they weren't asking some absurd, you know, stupid number. Right, right. It also helps too to pick and to pick, uh, you know, a, a person like yourself to work with that is knowledgeable on those things that helps set expectations and that can market it effectively and and knows all the ins and outs of like you know tax advantages and ten thirty ones and things like that. Right. That's right. It's yep. all about part. That's I mean, <laughs> that's right. Um, yeah. So you know, having. I've been in the business for a long time, so I've seen a lot of things and, and learned a lot. But having somebody knowledgeable on your side that if you don't know, especially in an error situation, people people are given a piece of property and you're like, I don't know what to do with it. Um, hiring a, a good land broker that has experience dealing with, you know, whatever might come at them, having surveyors or appraisers at their fingertips to also reach out to or, or a good legal real estate lawyer. Um, having that network and that background saves you a lot by using a good agent. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that speaks a lot to yourself as well. Like I, I know for a fact, you're one of the more experienced land professionals in our entire company. And you're talking to me about, you know, I learned some things and it's somebody that can yeah. go in like that and still admit that they have things to learn or, or still be willing to learn and, and pick those things up really helps out. It's, it benefits the client, right? That's right. And um, and then it comes back to our networking. You know, now one of our agents in South Carolina or somewhere might hear you know, this podcast and, and say, hey, well, what's more about this Torrens Law? Um, and now our network inside National Land, you know, we're all like brothers across the country. You know, in, in a month we go to our summit in Charlotte and I get to sit down with all these guys and, and have a good time with them. And, you know, I say birds of a feather flock together, but all of the guys that tend to work for national land are in some way um, bonded by hunting and fishing and outdoorsmen. And, you know, there are some guys that do more commercial based stuff or whatever, but the, the bulk of us, we all enjoy the same things in life. So I can pick up the phone and I've got, I could probably think of 30 guys that I could call right now and they pick up the phone and say, Hey man, how you doing? And ask them anything that I need to, um, that they might be more knowledgeable than me and vice versa, um, and be willing to help me. So our network in, as National Land Realty agents is awesome. I was going to say at the, at the last summit, some of the coolest things that I saw was just when there would be a circle up of experienced land agents and they would just kind of like, you know, glass of whiskey and just talking land. 
And I, I just kind of sat on the edge of it. And I think I learned more in 30 minutes than I have in, you know, the years that I've been in, in the industry. It was just amazing to hear just the, the complexities of the conversation. I'm like, no, you do this. Well, this is how this works. Well, no, no, th- th- this law yeah. doesn't apply there. It, it's just, it was just fascinating. That's right. Yep. Awesome, yeah, man. Well, hey, uh, any last words, man? Any Anything that like, you know, good note to leave on as far as like, how did this sale go or or, or things that you would want to want a listener or a landowner to know kind of before before you bounce out here? Well, you can talk to Mr. Ed Mabry in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and he'll tell you everything that you need to know about National Land Realty as the company and give us a good, <laughs> good pitch. But um, have patience if you're a buyer or seller. Find a good agent that's reputable and, um, you know, reach out to a land broker with National Land Realty if you uh, if you want the same outcome, I guess. Awesome. Aaron, uh, I'll have your contact information in the notes. Uh, it's always awesome talking to you. And, uh, hey, I'll see you in three weeks. Yeah, sounds like a plan, buddy. All right, man. Thank you for your time. It's much appreciated. All right. This concludes episode number 28 of the National Land Realty Podcast, discussing the largest sale in our company's history, the 8,000-acre Roper Island, with land professional Aaron Sutton out of North Carolina. You can learn more about land ownership and the buying and selling of land at nationalland.com. On the end of this episode, I want to do a little bit of bragging. We are now at over 5,000 downloads for this show. And at around 45 minutes an episode, that's nearly 5,000 hours of listening time that listeners have done. So I just want to take a second and express humble, humble appreciation for all of you listeners. That is amazing. Uh, So thank you. And make sure to win some National Land Realty gear. We're talking hats, uh, coffee cups, things like that review this podcast we will select the best of you that means the most creative that puts in a puts in a review there so i know we're opening ourselves up there but this is this is supposed to be fun so put in those reviews and we will select a winner thank you all and we'll see you on the next episode